All right, Rock Bridge. Hey, my name is Matt. I want to welcome you at all six of our physical locations, and then also a lot of you are online, and, and we're grateful that, uh, that you're here, grateful that you're a part of, uh, of this weekend at Rockbridge Community Church. I, if I could get the, the TV rolling, um, that'd be good. Um, so, hey, up on the, on, the, some of the on the screen here, you see information about Disciple Now. And so, hey, one of the greatest things we do for our young people is this, coming, is this weekend. I've shared this with you for 22 years. If it weren't for events like this, I mean, I would have missed some God stuff in my own life. And so I want to ask you to pray. I want to ask you to consider volunteering. And if you have influence over a, a student in 6th through 12th grade, use that influence to uh, get them there, to encourage them to participate in Disciple Now. All right, so we have been in this series called The Crown. This is part 25, if you've been counting, and we are going to round third base this weekend. We're going to hit home. We're going to wrap up this series where we've been walking through verse by verse uh, the, the, the request that Israel makes to have a king, a human king, and, and God gives them their request. They get a guy named Saul. He doesn't work out, and now we're in this transition from Saul to King David. If you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel 29, we're going to try to hit three chapters this weekend. Now, what these three chapters do as we round out this, this iteration of this biblical story is they capture attention by, a, by way of contrast. The biblical author is going to contrast some things for us. Now, before we get into that, I think you don't even have to be a Bible person. You don't even have to be a church person. You're here. Somebody invited you. You're here by what you think is coincidence. You're not even a Christian. Yet, and one thing we all share is we all have to live with tensions. We all have to live with, with kind of competing things or contrasting things. It could be as, as simple as financial tension. Hey, I, I want to save, but I also want to give. It could be parenting tension, right? Hey, I want to protect my kids, but I also have to release my kids, right? It could be physical tension that, hey, I want to do something, but my body won't let me do it, right? I mean, people have been there. Teenagers, you know, you have this tension of what you want to be able to do and what your parents will let you do. So we all live inside of, of attention. And, and it's important for us, and what, what Christianity offers is an explanation for the big tensions of life, but, ex, but it also teaches us, shows us a way to live in that tension with peace and joy and hope. And so what we're going to see in, in, in 1 Samuel, and we've really already seen this if you've been tracking with us, is there's a tension that parallels or sort of mirrors our own tension, all right? So there's a tension of God has said you don't need a king, and the people say, no, we do, and we, don't, we want a different king. We want a human king. We want a political king. We want a king like all the other nations. And God says, okay, and so they, they get the king they want in Saul, but it's not the king they need. The king they need has to come from God himself, and so God picks, raises up this guy named David, and we've been watching his emergence for the past 25 weeks. And we know from Scripture, and we know because we've been talking about it, that David is not the ultimate king. He's not the penultimate king. He's not even the hero of the story, but David is like an appetizer. David is a foretaste. David points us to the true king. And when we get introduced to the true king in the first verse of the first book of the New Testament, Jesus is introduced as this, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, 
meaning this is the king you need, this is the king you've been waiting for, this is the king whose reign and rule and authority you want to be under. He's Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so to zoom out the tension that we live in, and you're in this tension. You, you can look at these two circles and where they overlap, and you are somewhere inside of these two circles. And again, you're like, hey, Matt, I'm not even sure about Jesus. I'm not sure about Rockbridge. I, I just am here because somebody invited me. You're still in these circles. I'm in these circles. Everybody's in these circles. So here's the tension, right? The world we live in, and there's tension in the world. There's brokenness in the world. There's cancer in the world. There's war in the world. There's divorce. I mean, just name it. Our bodies break down. And, and this world gets represented by the way Saul rules and what Saul does. I mean, we saw a couple of weeks ago, Saul conducted a seance and talked to a witch. Crazy, right? And so it's the kingdom that Saul represents. It's the kingdom that happens when we are in charge, ourself, the me, myself, and I kingdom. And ultimately, it's the kingdom where Satan has influence. And then over here, there's this kingdom over here, Jesus, son of David, the eternal, the perfect, and complete kingdom. And again, you don't have to be a Christ follower, but you long for a world without pain, don't you? You long for a world with justice and freedom. You long for a world where there's no such thing as death and the curse of the creation and all those things. So all of us have this longing for something that can't be found in this world. And if you are only living in this world, it is only a matter of time until something happens to you or around you when you get a longing for this world. And what God does is he inserts himself in the overlap, the tension between the, this world and this kingdom. And he does it by putting his son on a cross and we cross over from this world to this world on this bridge, if you will, that's the son of God, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So how do we live in this tension? Now this tension gets alluded to in, in the book of Hebrews. It's a powerful statement. Listen to what it says. All these people, and these are people of faith. These are people who belong to the kingdom of God, but they're living in the kingdom of the world. All these people died still believing what God had promised them, and they did not receive what was promised, but they saw it all from a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. Obviously, people who say such things are looking forward to a country they can call their own, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. Doesn't that speak to some people here this weekend? I'm looking for something better. I haven't found it yet. I'm hoping for something better, but I haven't found anything. Uh, embrace that tension in your soul because you have it, whether you're a Christ follower or not, you have that tension. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared something. He's prepared a city for them. So what it's saying is these people lived right here. They lived right here. They never received this, but they were looking to it. They were hoping for it. They were longing for it. They knew this was not their home because their heart was not satisfied, but something of faith was pulling them, alluring them, drawing them to this kingdom. And that's a tension that's in everybody's soul to some degree here this weekend at Rockbridge Community Church. So the question we're going to try to wrestle as we conclude 1 Samuel is, what is life like now in the tension if you're in the kingdom of God? Another question we should ask, which kingdom, big K or little K, am I now living in? And who is my king? 
Am I following a king like Saul, a king like myself, which is really a king that masquerades as Satan? Or am I following the true king, the son of David, Jesus Christ? The story picks up in chapter 29, and David is not in a good spot. David has become a mercenary to Israel's arch rival and their big enemy, the Philistines. And now it gets even worse for David. And David is supposed to be what the king that Israel needs and the king that's going to replace Saul. Not a good situation. So the Philistines brought all their military units together in effect while Israel was camped by the spring in Jezreel. As the Philistine leaders were passing in review in their units of hundreds and thousands, David and his men were passing behind them with Achish. That's who David served or worked for in his territory. And so here's David, an Israelite, David, a Jew, essentially marching behind the sworn enemies of the Jews. It's no bueno. That's not good. If this situation, if David goes to fight with them, he will not become the king. Jesus will not, it will not say Jesus Christ, son of David in, in Matthew 1.1. That's how sticky this situation is. His entire future is in jeopardy. So the question becomes, how does God get David out of this tension? How does God get David out of this mess? Because David is in a hopeless situation. There does not appear to be any way out of it because the guy who gave him territory, gave him a city named Ziklag, this guy wants David to fight. If he fights, he loses the kingdom. If he fights, he loses the promise of God. How's God going to get him out of this? The Philistine commanders, however, were enraged with Achish and told him, send that man back and let him return to the place you assigned him. He must not go down with us into battle only to become our adversary during the battle. The Philistines saved David from doing something that would cost David the promises of God. Later on, David's going to recognize this was the work of God. This was the hand of God. This is God using pagan people, just like we see with Jesus. He used Judas. He used Caiaphas. He used Pilate, all to fulfill the plans of Jesus, to take him to the cross and bring him out on the, in the empty tomb on Easter, and we're moving toward that as we move toward, the, toward a Holy Week. Uh, so God's hand is all of this, and it tells us something about what it's like to live in the kingdom of God right now and the kingdom of God and we have to get this church we have to get this people is 100% grace it's overcoming grace it's God stepping in and overcoming all of the barriers all of the obstacles that would keep us from moving into and experiencing his best and his kingdom we don't deserve it we're all in a place that we don't we're all in a place of our own making we are all headed apart from Jesus apart from the overcoming grace everybody's headed toward damnation everybody and so what does God do to get us from the world to his kingdom, he puts overcoming grace and he makes it available to us. God's grace overcomes condemnation. God's grace overcomes our rebellion. God's grace will eventually overcome every disease, every sickness. God's grace will eventually overcome death. We see that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is why Jesus steps in when he, become, when he announces his own kingdom. And he says this, take heart because I have overcome the world. What world is he talking about? The Saul, self, and Satan world. 
That's where David finds himself when he's passing in review as a mercenary for the enemies of God's people. It's all of grace. It's all by grace. There is, so, so listen, here's the good news. You don't work yourself into the kingdom of God. You don't deserve yourself into the kingdom of God. You don't stand before God and say, hey, I'm better than those people over there. You just come by the overcoming grace of God. You just have to receive it. And it tells us something about our God. And we need to worship God. Worship's not just singing. I can worship while I'm preaching. You can worship while you're listening. It tells us something about our God, that he goes after David, even though David has walked away from God. David is doing ungodly things with ungodly people in an ungodly land. Some of us can relate. Some of us, that's our story. Some of us, that's our tension right now because you want out of it, because you know it's costing you something you didn't want to pay when you first went there. What does it tell us about our God? That he's jealous. You shall not worship another God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Now, he's not jealous out of insecurity. You, some of you have dated jealous people, and they're insecure, right? Always harassing. Who's that text from, right? That's not God. God's jealous because he's a lover, and you and I belong to him. You and I belong to him. And, and so, let's embrace the tension. David is here. This is where we are apart from God. We're here. And because God is jealous for people over here, he's, he works out things like getting enemies to serve his purpose, getting the Philistines to serve his purpose. He plants his son here in this world to serve his purpose. He's jealous to get us from here to here, but it's overcoming grace. It's 100% grace. Now, to understand grace, you got to understand a couple of things. One, you have to appreciate the seriousness of David's condition and our condition because it mirrors our condition. Apart from God, nothing. There are no good people. There are no deserving people. You know, we like to, you know, we, I think a lot of us masquerade as respectable sinners. And we think the respectable means, hey, we're not really that bad. No, we all needed the blood of Jesus. We all needed the overcoming grace of, God, of grace of God to overcome our hearts and our resistance so we could come into the kingdom of God. So we have to appreciate the seriousness of our condition. We have to recognize something. There is no hero but God and no hope apart from God. Do not read the Bible and say, I need to be more like David because he ain't the hero. God is the hero from Genesis to Revelation. We're the anti-hero. We're the rebels, the villains, the traitors. We're the ones that go make peace with our enemies and then join our enemies in the fight against the kingdom of God. And that's the situation we're in. We're passing in review in the armies of Satan until God intervenes with overcoming grace, grabs our heart and says, I am jealous for you to be part of my family and my kingdom forever. And though we have to receive this grace, and we do that by faith. We don't earn it. We just receive it. So let me share the gospel with you. And I'll use Paul's words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But God who is rich in mercy. There's more mercy in God than there is mess and mistake in you and me. Amen, right? Worship it. There's more, let me say that again. There's more mercy in God 
than mistake and mess in you and me. I'm a mess, you're a mess. I make mistakes, you make mistakes. God's mercy is greater. Praise the Lord. Because of his great love that he had for us, so he had this love for us when we're over here sinning. He had this love for us when we're over here in the armies of the enemy. He had this love for us because God is love. But he can't just wink, wink, nod, nod, right? So what does he do? He made us alive with Christ. Now, if, if we weren't alive, what were we before then? We were dead. Do dead people have any hope? Can dead people come back to life? Can lost people? No, God has to invade. God has to bring overcoming grace. He made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. He has also raised us up with him. Jesus seated us with him in the heavens in Christ so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. The kingdom of Jesus is 100% grace. It's immeasurable grace. For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's great gift, not from work, so that no one, no one, no one can boast. And we're all good at boasting, right? We're all good about look at me and what we've done. And if we don't have anything that done that we're proud of, then we're fearful, afraid, and we're insecure. God says no one can boast. Answer this question right now in your heart, mind, and soul. If God says, why would I ever let you into my kingdom of, of heaven? Why would I ever let you have eternal life? Why would I ever adopt you into my family? What would you say? The only thing you can say is I put my hope and faith in Jesus Christ, the son of David, period, point blank. You cannot say I never missed a Sunday of church. You cannot say I'm not as bad as some of those people. And all of us have some of those people in our minds because we're all a little bit of judge, right? You can only say, but by the grace of God and the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we, now grace gets camouflaged in modern day language. Ever say this, hey, you owe me? Ever say, I deserve more, I deserve better? Ever say, I have these rights? You ever say, hey, I expect this from you, I expect this from God, I expect this from the world? Ever looked at something and said, no, that's mine? Those are anti-grace words. Those are words from Satan. Words like that will keep you in the pit of hell and keep you from the glory of heaven. Because those words, are, those words mean, I don't need grace I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, I have it, I've earned it, I deserve it, it's my right, I expect more, I expect best, it's mine. No, no, it's all of grace that we move in that direction. It's the overcoming grace of God. In fact, Paul, so, so in fact, Paul when he's like contemplating the grace of God, here, here's where he ends up. He's looking at Jews and Gentiles in Romans 11. He says he's imprisoned as all in disobedience so he may have mercy on all. And then he says, oh, the depth and riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments, how untraceable his ways. He worships because of grace. Now, you got to go back and look at Saul. You ever ask this question? How can God send anybody to hell? You've asked it. You've heard people ask it. When you understand the power of grace, when you understand it's all of grace, you will agree with the word of God, which says people are without excuse. If someone misses heaven, the problem is in their heart, not in the heart of God. 
For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. That is a picture of King Saul without excuse. So here's warning, here's invitation, here's hope. The jealousy of God for yours and my undivided love and devotion will always have the final say. He will pursue us, he will pursue us, he will pursue us, and it is us who will push him away, push him away, or receive that grace by faith. Number one, the kingdom of God is 100% by grace. David gets out of this jam because of the Philistines. So he goes back to the territory he has where he's held his family in this town called Ziklag. And they arrived there on the third day. The Amicalites had raided the Negev, the Negev excuse me, and attacked and burned the city. They had also kidnapped the women and everyone in it from youngest to oldest. They had killed no one, but had carried them off as they went on their way. When David and his men arrived at their town, they found it burned. Their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been kidnapped. Just when you think it can't get any worse, it does. That's the tension, right? We want it to get better, we get grace, but our situation gets worse. God, where are you? God, what are you doing? It gets even worse for David. So David and his men, they grieve, they weep loudly until they had no, they weep so long, they get so tired, they can't weep anymore. David's situation's even worse. He's in an extremely difficult position because the troops talked about stoning him for they were very bitter over the loss of their sons and daughters because who led them to this town and who led them to be mercenaries in the army? God didn't. David did. So he's still getting the shrapnel of his own sinful decision. And, and so the, the question, and this is such a huge question, and, I, and I'll lay it in front of everybody here this weekend. All of us are a part of a kingdom, the world or Jesus. Does your kingdom work when you hit rock bottom? Because David's pretty close. If you, if you live in the kingdom of sports, your kingdom doesn't work when an injury occurs, does it? Or you can no longer play those sports. Or if you're a Falcons fan, it's never worked for you, right? If you live in the kingdom of money and you have a recession or you lose your job, your kingdom doesn't work. If you live in the kingdom of friends and your friends leave or friends betray you, your kingdom doesn't work at rock bottom. So does your kingdom, you're, we're all part of one, we've already said that, does it work when the brokenness of the world, the tension of the world takes us where that rope we showed at the beginning is at the breaking point. Listen to this. But David found strength in the Lord his God. David has not mentioned God, or God and David have not been found in the same sentence since chapter 26. David said to the priest, Abathar, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. David hasn't asked for that priestly deal to discern the will of God since 20, chapter 23. So Abathar brought it to him, and David asked the Lord, should I pursue these raiders? Will I overtake them? And the Lord replied to him, pursue them, for you will certainly overtake them and rescue the people. The kingdom of God works at rock bottom. 
The kingdom of God works in a funeral home. The kingdom of God works on a 911 phone call. The kingdom of God works through divorce. The kingdom of God works at betrayal. The kingdom of God works when you're being criticized. The kingdom of God works because, it's a, it's hell, because the king is a living God. The king is a God who rose again. Death could not even defeat him. So the kingdom of God works. And you got to ask this question, non-Christians. you got to ask the question, does the kingdom you're a part of work when your life hits rock bottom? And, and then we see something interesting, though, that David gets strength from God. His situation doesn't change. It's, it's like a New Testament passage. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And Steph Curry puts this verse on all his shoes. But this was written by a man who's in the pit of a Roman prison in the town of Philippi. Or as he's writing the, to, to this church in Philippi, excuse me. His situation wasn't good, so the kingdom works when you're in a prison. The kingdom works when your troops are betraying you and your family's been kidnapped by terrorists. The kingdom of God works. So how does God strengthen David? His circumstances don't change yet. How does God strengthen David? A couple of things. First of all, David exercises personal faith. His faith becomes a verb again. His faith becomes a verb. He begins walking again by the word of God, the promises of God, and the presence of God. This is, you know, I tell you all the time, Rockbridge, there's a difference between believing in God. Most people believe in God, maybe creator God, maybe higher power God. Maybe they don't believe in a father God and the son, God, and the son of God and the spirit of God, but they believe in God. It's a when faith becomes personal, when faith becomes a verb, you go from believing in God to believing God. When God says, you believe God. When God asks, you say yes. So faith becomes a verb again. He then exercises the privilege of God's presence. He seeks the Lord. Paul, in that Philippians book that he wrote when he's in prison, he talks about the peace of God that passes all understanding that comes when you pray. So he, you, you get in God's presence and God speaks. So the kingdom of God works when life does not work. The kingdom of God works when it hits rock bottom because we have access to the resources of our king even as we're still in this crazy broken world where bad things happen. So then David takes, on the word of God, David takes 600 men and they came to this wadi or this creek at Besor and some stayed behind. David and 400 men continued the pursuit while 200 stopped because they were too exhausted to cross the creek or the wadi Besor. David's men found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. This seems random, right? But it's not random because God's not a random God. Then David said to him, who do you belong to? Where are you from? He says, I'm an Egyptian, the slave of the Amicalite man. That's the people who raided David's people. He said, my master abandoned me when I got sick three days ago. We raided the south country. We burned Ziklag. That's David's home, or that's David's temporary home. That's where his family was kidnapped. David then asked him, will you lead me to these raiders? And so he led him. And there were the Amicalites spread out over the entire area, eating, drinking, and celebrating because of the great amount of plunder they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah, David's. David slaughtered them from twilight 
until the evening of the next day. He recovered everything the Amicalites had taken. He also rescued his two wives. Nothing of theirs was missing from the youngest to the oldest, including the sons and the daughters, and all of the plunder the Amicalites had taken. David got everything back. He took all the flocks and the herds which were driven ahead of the other livestock, and the people shouted, this is David's plunder. This small victory is complete and total, and it foreshadows a truth about the kingdom of God. And this is something we can experience right now, even in the tension of those two worlds, those two kingdoms, that the kingdom of God is inevitably victorious. You are living in one of two ways, people. You are living as a victor, or you're living as a victim, or you're deluded. The kingdom of God is inevitably victorious. So there's this victory in 1 Samuel 29 foreshadows a larger victory for David that's coming in in 2 Samuel. The coming of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus foreshadows a larger victory, the inevitable, complete, consummate victory at the second coming of Christ. So when we live inside the kingdom of God right here, we know complete victory is coming. And we know the best is yet to come. But we don't expect the best from this world or to be of this world. That best is coming here. And that gives us hope when we're here. Now, what's David's path to victory? Very similar to what you and I would experience. It starts within. He found strength in his God. Kingdom of God is within you, we'll learn in the New Testament. When we get a resurrection heart, we become a new creation. Faith becomes a verb. God does unexpected things. Don't put God in a box. He took an Egyptian slave and used it to bring victory. Right? And then he lives by grace as a victor. He lives sent. He lives as one who is inevitably going to be the king. He lives with hope. He lives with expectancy. The same is true of you and me. Now, the story continues, and we see more. Now, David has come out of this darkness. David has come out of this rock-bottom experience, and he's walking in grace. He's representing grace. He's a victor. He's not a victim. He's now embracing this calling, this positioning in the kingdom of God. So something cool happens. Remember I told you 200 of the 600 says we can't fight. We're too tired. So he comes back to these guys, right, who had, who had been left at the wadi, And they came out to meet him and to meet the troops. And David approached these men, these 200, and greeted them. But some of the 400, they were corrupt and worthless men. They argued with David and they said, because they didn't go with us, we will not give away any of the plunder that we recovered to them except for each man's wife and children. They may take them and go. Now, which kingdom are these men in? Is what they're saying gracious? Are they trying to be a blessing? No. They're over here. You don't deserve. You haven't earned. We don't owe. We're going to keep your part. What does David say? My brothers, you must not do this. With what the Lord has given us, 100% grace, He protected us. He handed handed over to us the raiders who came against us through the Egyptian slave. God's ways are unexpected. Who can agree to your proposal? If you've been touched by the grace of God, how can you then not be gracious to other people? 
The share of the one who goes into battle is to be the same as the share of the one who remains with the supplies. Notice the gracious explanation. He's like, they stayed behind because they were tired. David's like, no, actually, they also stayed behind, and they kept the supply lines going to the battlefield. If anybody knows anything about combat, you outrun your supply lines. It's a bad day on the battlefield. So they will share equally. And it has been so from that day forward in David's kingdom, which represents Jesus' kingdom, which is a kingdom of grace. David established this policy and laws and ordinance for Israel, and it still continues this day. So listen, when you are a part of the kingdom of God, you are being transformed into a reflection of the true King Jesus because you are commissioned now. We say at Robbery's to live sent. When we talk about hope, when we talk about mission trips, when we talk about bringing some with you, someone with you to church, when we talk about being a blessing, when we talk about filling this place up on Easter weekend with people who need to be adopted and moved into the kingdom of Jesus by the overcoming grace of God, that's us challenging ourselves to represent the true King Jesus. And that's what Je David does. He says, we're going to bless these people. Even though they weren't fighting with us, they were behind here taking care of the supplies. So here's what it means to be a reflection of the true king. If you've received grace, you give grace. You've been forgiven, you forgive. People found by the overcoming grace of God, go help find more people to experience the grace of God. Bless people, bless people. Loved people, love people. We represent God who has graced us, God who has forgiven us, God who has found us, God who has blessed us, God who has loved us even when we were in rebellion. So we live here, but we live by the values of this world. And people, more people are brought from here to here. Now, <clears throat> when you go to chapter 31... It's not good. Because we flip back to Saul. And God, in one day, gives us a picture of where this world takes us or leads and leaves us. Back to Saul. The Philistines fought against Israel. And Israel's men fled from them and were killed on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines pursued Saul and his sons and killed his sons. That includes Jonathan, David's best friend. When the battle intensified against Saul, the archers found him and severely wounded him. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, draw your sword and run me through with it, or these uncircumcised men will come and run me through and torture me. But his armor bearer would not do it because he was terrified, and so Saul commits suicide. He took his sword and he fell on it. When his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his own sword and died with him. So that day Saul died together with his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men. The next day the Philistines come to sort of loot the battlefield and they find Saul's body. They cut off his head, stripped off his armor, sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temples of their idols and among the people. They evangelize. Because they think their kingdom has won. Then they put his armor on the temple of the Ashtoreths and hung his body on the wall of Bethshan. And then it ends, or it transitions to 2 Samuel 
Why is chapter 31 in there? There's a contrast between two kingdoms. God sometimes shows us the reality of evil. He shows it in the word of God. He shows it on the evening news. Sometimes he shows us our heart and the evil that's in our heart. But it's the shadow that proves the existence of the sun. Think about if you ever try to describe lightness, to what is light to someone. Sometimes to describe light to someone, you have to describe darkness. So the shadow of chapter 31 reminds us and beckons us to the hope of the coming king, David, and ultimately the one true king, Jesus. So the shadow of this world is in contrast to the light of this world. And if you've ever been in the shadows, the darkness, the fruit of sin, the fruit of rebellion, there's a hunger in you, a calling from you to come into the kingdom of the light. Which is why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. You hear that invitation? Which kingdom are you in? And do you hear the invitation of the one true king? Now, gets even better because the one true king dies the sinner's death. Saul died the sinner's death, a death of judgment, a death of condemnation. Saul, we could say, got what he deserved, but Jesus took what we deserved. Notice when they crucified Jesus, the language they used. It was the preparation day for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and Pilate said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And he wasn't the king they wanted then but he is the king we need now. And above his head, they put up the charge against him in writing. Said, this is Jesus. And they're mocking him because they don't think he's the king, but he's the king. You know what Jesus is doing? This king, he's dying for me and for you. So we can cross that bridge And move from the shadow and the darkness into the light. The interesting thing is when Jesus died, the land went dark. The shadow. Because the true king died. For me and for you. So is he your king? And are you living right now in his kingdom? Here's my prayer and we'll close. I pray, Paul says, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty strength. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I will be quiet and allow you to talk to God or God to speak to you. He is king. He is Lord. Behold your king. This is Jesus. And he is king.
Jesus, you are the light of the world. I pray right now, people are crossing out of the shadows and the darkness into the kingdom of light. I pray right now, God, that someone has their hope restored because of the inevitable victory that is yours. I pray right now a heart of worship rises up in people who realize, who see, who are amazed at the grace that operates, that rules in the kingdom of Jesus. God, I pray right now, in every heart, you are king. Jesus, in your name we pray.